0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for the third episode of our podcast, Groundbreakers. On this podcast, we interview early-stage founders and real estate investors to hear their stories of what led them to have success in their career and their journey from zero to one. I'm joined today by Sean O'Dowd, General Partner at Scholastic Capital. Scholastic Scholastic Capital is a fund focused on investing in single-family homes in 10 out of 10 elite school districts. Thanks so much for joining us, Sean. Very excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Amazing. Uh, well, very excited to hear your story. I think, you know, looking at your LinkedIn profile, we went to school together. Like, I think you've had an amazing journey. So, we'd love to hear what you were doing before Scholastic Capital. What's your career been like? What did you study back in school? Like, just tell us the story of how you got here.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I'll actually go back a little bit further because the story the story started when I was young. I, uh, before I went to college, I'd moved 22 times. So, I, I was bouncing around. Yeah, it, it, it was a lot. So, I, I was bouncing around constantly every single year growing up, uh, which was pretty cool for a variety of different reasons, maybe super outgoing, because I was always the new kid at school, the whole nine yards. But that actually made me really interested in real estate, because I was constantly moving all the time. And like, oh, like finding a new place to live is this fun thing that we all do every six to eight months, and it's normal. And like, let's, uh, oh, we're walking down the street, we should stop and look at the like the pictures in the real estate agent office. They have in the wall because we're probably gonna be moving soon and it's fun to be looking at new places um so that was that was where i kind of grew up and then um so for me real estate was always like a when not if kind of thing uh from i stopped moving i was able to go to the same place and live in the same place for four years which is for school so so went to Wharton undergrad like you um st- studied management and marketing while there um was on the crew team was a management 100 ta did the whole like thing there Finished up and then worked in consulting. So, um, went to BCG in the Chicago office for a couple of years, um, met my wife in the process, uh, left after a couple of years, built my own consulting firm. And basically that whole time of my professional career, I've been taking the, the money I was making from either big professional consulting or my own consulting firm and dumping it into real estate to test a thesis. And now, now I'm at the point where the t- thesis has been tested and it's my full time job.
0: that's amazing um before getting and diving into like what now you're testing out with a thesis we'd love to hear a bit more about the journey and you said you started your own consulting practice like how did you go about doing that i think a lot of founders a lot of people want to get into consulting on the side whether they have a full-time job or not like how Mm -hmm. do you go about building out that clientele
1: yeah you know it was um uh for lack of better words a complete accident uh What happened was I uh I left BCG. I knew I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial for a variety of different reasons. Um and left, took a job at a startup in Chicago as employee 40 doing strategy and operations work for. A forum. And while I was there, I had been dating this fantastic girl who I wanted to propose to her. Great. Um, so went to go get an engagement ring for her. No, my, my now wife her name's pear um so i went to went to the tiffany store and they said, go oh well let me show you our rings and they have a ring called the pear ring because it's a diamond that's flanked by two pear-shaped diamonds so i was like oh my god like this is perfect i have to get her the pear ring obviously this is just how it works um so i did that and they had they were like well we also have 12 month zero percent um zero uh, 12 months zero percent interest rate financing i was like well this is a very expensive purchase like that's a couple grand of inflation savings. I obviously should do this too. Um, and I felt really smart for about two and a half weeks. And then my, mo- my monthly payment hit. And I was like, oh my God, I am screwed. Um, and this was, I was like 22 at the time. So it was this was very not mature financial thinking. Don't do this at all. Um, but it was kind of a situation where like, I was literally backed into a corner where I said like, hey, I have a payment due in two weeks. It is a ton of money. I can't screw around with something that's like pre-revenue. I can't build an affiliate site, or I can't do this, that, or whatever. Like, I need something that's going to be my bank account in two weeks. Um, and it was like, all right, well, like I know how to consult, so I'm going to do that. So I went um, went online. I found a couple platforms that basically were were matching consultant with client, and just started taking projects um, on the the side of my day job and trying to do it at night without my then girlfriend at the time realizing why I was like suspiciously working a lot more. Um, so she didn't get suspicious. Uh, and then it was a really kind of interesting compounding thing where like one client led to another, led to another, led to another. And then it got to a point where I I had a almost clear niche established to the kind of work that I was doing. And about a year after that, it got to the point where I actually left the job at the startup because I was just spending all my time doing the consulting stuff.
0: Wow. That's awesome. If people <laughs> want to learn more, like what type of consulting do you do? Yeah. So, um,
1: it's really a couple different. Couple different pillars. Two are the were the most common. Um, number one was I did a lot of work for private equity backed portfolio companies. Basically, like the first six months or so post acquisition, private equity firm has a thesis as to why they acquire a company. Like we think we can fix these seven things to make the company better. They would bring me in like the day the the day they acquired ownership and be like, okay, you have one of the seven. Like go figure out how to do it. Um, which was a lot of fun. It was very operational. Um, a lot of uh, Big budget, but a lot of emphasis on like, hey, we gotta move fast and get something done. So that was really cool. I really like that work. The other, um, the other type of work that I did was like Fortune 500 strategy type stuff. Um, but I was almost like the pre-look. For example, like if you want to bring in McKinsey, BCG, whatever, to do some strategy work for you, three, four, five million bucks to do that work. Um, or if the company thought there might be something there, but they weren't three to five million dollar convinced there was something there, they would bring me in for 250 grand to look at it and say like, hey, is there an opportunity here? Yes or no. And if I said no, then they're out 250. If I said yes, then they felt more confident going to give BCG a $3 million check to look at it more detail.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Um, How it like seems like you're able to build a pretty good client book. It helped that I think you had the BCG background. So people I think Mm -hmm. already trusted you with these initial calls. Like, For a founder first getting started off and why do consulting, like would you recommend starting and trying to use these websites that match? Or would you have another strategy now looking back when you're first getting started?
1: It's a good question. I, I would. Um, I think the websites are are fantastic because they they have a take rate, right? like all of these websites do typically in the 20% range. But that's, that's basically the equivalent of like a commission you're writing a commission to them for doing the work and they also have ha- hammered out the msas which in and of itself is like a huge hassle um so i'm a big fan of the platform with my favorites catalan for example i'm a big uh big fan of it there um the other piece that's interesting is having now done this independent consulting work for like five six years at this point um the the highest paying like cohort of clients by far is private equity and then there's a decent gap. And then it's Fortune 500 clients uh, or billion dollar plus like established clients. And then there's a lot of gap. And then there's like C or below startups. Um, so it's interesting because like the, the, the guys who pay the most are the private equity guys because they've got the most capital. They're the ones who are on the platform. So like if you want to make a good amount of money doing this and like you go where the highest paying clients are, which is the, the platforms.
0: No, makes so much sense. Private equity is always willing to pay top dollar. If you have the right skill set, they're looking for. So, no, that makes exactly. a lot of sense. Um, so you mentioned that you use a lot of the money you made to start investing in real estate. And I know when we first spoke, you mentioned like doing your very first deal. It didn't pan out the way you thought it would. I think that's mm-hmm. an experience a lot of people have when they're yeah. first getting started off in real estate investing. So would love to just hear your story with that. What were some of your key learnings and how did that project play out?
1: Yeah. So what we, uh, so this is we being my wife and I, what we did was, um, we knew both of us knew real estate was a when, not if she was also, also always really interested in real estate. Um, so we, we did the, the traditional, like go online and learn about it. And the thing that we kept on seeing was like affordable multifamily in the Midwest. And we were like, okay, like that makes sense. There's one roof, not six. There's, um, If one tenant moves out, you've got the other group who are still paying rent and covers your expenses, and that that made intuitive sense to us. So we we bought a seven-unit property in um, the Quad Cities area. It's uh, basically a border of Illinois and uh, Iowa, Um, Moline, East Moline, Davenport, Iowa, and then one other one that I'm blanking on. Um, But it's like two hundred thousand people live there. John Deere was headquartered there. Like there's there was a, a decent size. So we said, great, like this makes sense. It's a big area seven units for 150 grand 155 grand like let's do it um we got absolutely crushed absolutely crushed 10 ways to a uh, few sunday for a variety of different reasons but the big learning was really twofold number one is we weren't thinking about real estate from a logical structured perspective like the way that i had been taught at before in the bcg of like hey um B B C D there's a the concept of like right to win. Like what gives Coke the right to win against Pepsi, for example? Like what gives gave our seven unit property the right to win a tenant compared to any one of the other literally hundreds of thousands of housing units in the area? Nothing. Like our place was not materially better in any way, shape, or form. We were just another property. There's no reason why ours was better. That was that was a big learning. Um Number two was uh property management and the the number one the importance of property management number two the importance of good property management we had terrible property management um there and there was significant ramifications to the the p and l as a result from that
0: i feel like getting bad property manager is just a rite of passage for every Ooh. investor you're like let me cut on costs and take the manage the management company that's like giving me the best deal. And they're like, okay, I now know why they charge the lease because they give you literally no time of day. And it's just not panning out how you thought it was going to do.
1: Yeah. The property management is such an interesting and interesting world. And um I mean you can optimize it for it, right? Because like some properties have higher property management burden versus than others. Um like for us now, like I want the lowest property management burden property I can possibly find. And then some.
0: Yep. No, that's awesome. And I, and I love that you weren't just stuck in like looking at bigger pockets all day and then like <laughs> continuously optimizing for like what's going to be the perfect best deal. Like yep. you just went in, took your learnings. You're like, all right, I came away with a lot from that. Like, how can I now improve on that and really have the right to win on future properties mm-hmm. moving forward? So no, that's awesome. Um, would love to dive a little bit more into now Scholastic Capital. Like, would love to hear your thesis around that. Like, clearly you learned a lot from this first home. You've now done a lot of different properties just on mm-hmm. your personal balance sheet. So we'd love to hear more about Scholastic Capital and your thesis there.
1: Yeah. So it uh, there's a bunch of different inputs that went into this. My mom's a teacher. My um, my wife, her family emigrated to the country. Um, and they moved to an area that they couldn't really afford because it had a good public school. So we, we had a couple of different inputs that went in. But continuing the thread from that first property... We're like, okay, like we didn't have a competitive advantage. Like we're going to find a property that has a competitive advantage above all else. Said, okay, great. Like what could a competitive advantage be for a property? Um, and we we basically came up with a list and then we discarded almost everything on that list for a variety of reasons. Um, so one was like, oh, like a competitive advantage, like it could be really nice. It has a really nice kitchen, but like that is not evergreen. Like that nice kitchen is not going to be nice in three to five years. And then you have to put another 60 grand or whatever it might be for depending on the property back in to make the kitchen nice again. You have to repeat like that. What didn't feel like a competitive advantage we wanted to try to win on. Um, and number two, I'm in the Chicago area. There's, there's a million housing units within an hour drive of here. A lot of them have nice kitchens. Like, okay, so that's not a good one. And we're like, okay, location, like, well, that's fungible a good location is different for everyone like maybe someone wants to be closer to public transit maybe someone wants to be closer to the office park over here someone wants to be closer to the office park over there. like everyone's definition of a good location is different um, So that w- literally what we did is we we pulled data regarding like what are the reasons people move and why do people move and it was job and then family reasons which then could be bucketed into a couple different buckets but the biggest one was for kids and for the kids' benefit. And we had just had our our second child at the time. We said, okay, well, let's put all this together combined with the fact that my mom was a teacher, my wife's family moved for education. We said, what happens if we buy the homes in the really elite school districts where the median purchase price is extremely expensive and, and people can't afford to get there, but they want to be there because the school's good and put it on the market. Um, so we we bought one kind of on a bought a home kind of on a lark to test that. And was blown away at the response. Was blown away at the numbers. Our agents thought we were nuts doing it in the first place, but it, it worked out great. So then we did another one, and another one, and another one, and it it just the same thing kept happening. And it got to the point where like, okay, there's we've learned a lot about the thesis to become a lot more refined since. But um, there was definitely like a there there after uh, that first piece, and it really came from the the learnings from that really terrible seven unit we did.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Um, I guess, how do you go about choosing what markets? So I really like resonate with a the thesis that a lot of people move for education and for their kids. Mm-hmm. Like I remember my parents also like chose to live where they did when I was a kid because they wanted me to go to a specific middle school. Mm-hmm. they're like, that to me is really important. So we're going to live in this area to get access to it.
1: And mm-hmm. everything's
0: so district-based. So mm-hmm. like, how do you choose what markets you want to operate in? Because this exists probably in every market. Everyone has like elite schools, but of course you need to be educated into like, what are those right schools that people are optimizing for? So yeah. How do you go about narrowing down that list? Yeah. So it
1: was all in about a year process for us to get to the list that we're, that we're now running with. Um, so I'll try to simplify a bit, like a year's worth of work into this. Um, so we, we basically started nationally said, okay, like there's 42,000 zip codes in the country. Like any one of these zip codes could theoretically be, be an option for us. and there are like the fancy names that you you probably know across the country. Like everybody's heard, like the Paul Altos of the world, the Greenwich, Connecticut, howland Park Dallas, like those places, they kind of fit what we're looking for. Um, but we we needed to kind of cut down a little bit more. So we, we did another consulting thing of like begin with the end in mind. And we got on the phone with, I tapped the work network and I got on the phone with, um, people from literally every single one of the largest single family funds out there, the guys who own 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 plus single family houses. And we said, Hey, we're going to be building this portfolio. We probably are going to want to sell this to you in 10 to 15 years because our investors are going to want their money back. Although uh, there's a variable there that we haven't, we didn't expect, but we said like, we're going to sell this to you. Like tell us what would you, what would you want these homes to look like? Where would you want them to be? Why? and, we got a unanimous answer back from them that they wanted the homes in the upper Midwest for a variety of different reasons. So I said, okay, great. Like every single fund is telling us go buy these homes in the upper Midwest. So then that went from 42,000 up to like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan. So great. Um, Now we're just a couple different states. Then it was a function of pulling quantitative and qualitative data regarding the school districts, getting like the absolute best school districts. That got us down from five states to a list of about a hundred zip codes. And then from there, it was a question of pulling additional data about those zip codes to get down to our final list of 21. So for example, we um, only want to be in zip codes where the owner occupancy rate is above 90% because that means there aren't rentals available and supply demand. There's a lot of demand to be there because the school district, there's no rental supply. Um, there's one. Another one is we want zip codes that we call our full, meaning there's no more buildable lots left. So like, Pulte is not going to come in and build a 500-home rental community. Um, we we want the full districts where there's it's at that, it's at stasis, and we're basically taking existing housing stock from supply from purchase supply to rental supply.
0: That is so smart. Like having and knowing who's going to purchase the properties in like 10 to 15 years, and like having the end outcome in mind even before starting. I think it's such a smart way of approaching the problem Um, because ultimately that's your buyer and that's who you're selling your fund to.
1: It is. And I got really lucky on this because of of all my time and training on the working with private equity firms, like when a private equity firm buys it, they're buying it knowing they're going to sell it in a couple of years. So everything that I did from an ops perspective for them was like, hey, we got to make this a nice, clean, tidy package for our buyer in three to five years to really like it and be like, great, like this is an easy thing. Um, so it was literally just the same thought process of like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to try to build this portfolio to a nice tidy package for somebody to buy.
0: No, that's, yeah, I love that approach. And yeah, when you first started off saying like, we looked at every single zip code in the United States, I was like, this man took it with a consulting mindset of how he actually <laughs> got to, which is a great way to get to what you ultimately decided on. Um, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, like, I think the macro environment right now with interest rates where they're at really mm-hmm. high, mm-hmm. everyone expects real estate to fall. Mm-hmm. I'm also building in the real estate space. So this is a question I always get from investors as people are thinking about it. And I'm sure you do all the time. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about the macro environment? Like, where do you see real estate going in the next three to five years with interest rates being as high as they are, with treasuries being as high as they are, especially because you're doing single family residential?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I can give my answer from, from our perspective. Um, I am not a macro economist expert. And I think the answer here is, is highly dependent on asset class and area of country. Um, from our perspective, um, because we're a long, we're long term buy and hold and because we are buying homes, uh, basically each summer over a five year period, um, and because of the fact that we have a fantastic lending partner that is giving us debt like 150 basis points below, basically what everyone else is getting, um, we feel relatively insulated because we're we're going in with lower cost of capital and we're basically uh, we have an investor who calls it dollar cost averaging into real estate over a five year period. Um, that and because we're holding it for the long term, we feel and our our, our model supports the idea that we're we're relatively stable. That being said, I, from a macro real estate perspective in area in the country side of things, um, I've got two main thoughts on that. Number one is the supply issue is significant and it will remain significant. I think the piece that's not being talked about nearly enough, but should be on the supply argument is um, even if if you get everybody to agree supply is low and even if you get uh, zoning, tax incentives, whatever it might be to encourage the increase of supply. If you look at the average age of skilled tradesmen in this country, plumbers, electricians in particular, the people who will be building these homes, their average age is on the 50s. There are are not plumbers in their 20s. There are not electricians in their 20s. Even if you got all the stars aligned where you could start building, you don't have the people who know how to do it. So I, I think the supply issue is actually just kind of beginning. Um, unless you have a significant increase in the labor force of individuals who know how to build homes. Um, so that's one. The other big macro thought is I, and this is part of the reason why the big funds were telling us to go upper Midwest. I firmly believe the biggest story in real estate over the next decade is going to be rising insurance costs. Um, I think it's uh, going to continue to increase. And I think people are starting to feel it, especially in areas like Florida and California where insurers are leaving I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg here, and I think if this continues, we're gonna see a significant impact and change into how people think about and approach and underwrite real estate.
0: You're so right on the insurance piece. I think people are just realizing like, oh my gosh, sea levels are rising, and that actually affects the price of my property. And not everything's reflected yet, but insurance is definitely beginning to price it in, and hence leaving many of these states. Which mm-hmm. is crazy to see. Yep. Um, completely aligned with you on the supply issue. Um, I also think that like our political system and constituents like aren't in- ever incentivized to build that much supply because no one ever wants supply in their specific market. Everyone's mm-hmm. like, I would love supply, just don't build it in my neighborhood. Yep. And I think that'll continuously be a problem until there's like really radical change. I agree. Um, so very much aligned with you there. Um, no appreciate you sharing that. Um mm-hmm. I guess a follow up question to that would be do you ever see yourself doing any sort of commercial real estate like getting into larger multifamily you start off with multifamily or maybe house mm-hmm. hacking as they call it but do you see yourself ever getting there?
1: Uh it's a good question. Um and we've <laughs> we've had a lot of people say something to the effect of us of like Hey, like, it's great. You're starting with this, like, cute single family thing, but then eventually you're going to get to multifamily because that's where, that's where the big money is and all that. Um, but I don't think so. Um, so the, the reason why is like, we've, we've, we're consultants and my, my partner's an attorney. Like, we've over engineered our model to like the, all you could possibly imagine is the most over engineered model in the world. But like, if we look at our model and like, even if we run our sensitivities in a way that's like fairly negative to the portfolio, at the end of a 12 to 15 year period, um, the, the exit for our investors is significant. And the exit for me and my partner is significant to the point that like, we would have more than enough money for the rest of our lives. Like, there, there's almost an element of like, do we, do we need to um um like i've got two young kids and if i if i blow out the scenario of like okay 10 to 10 to 15 years like okay they're in, they're in high school at the time like do i take a couple years off and just spend all the time with the, uh, my kids while they're in high school make sure i don't miss a sporting practice a play or singing or side or whatever it might be like yeah like that sounds awesome um so i think that's i think that's most likely the the path that we're going to go we're not we don't have illusions of um, being the next real estate billionaire or anything like that. Like, I, um, want to generate a badass return for our investors. And then, um, we'll, we'll take our, our, our 20% carry and then we'll, we'll call it a day from there.
0: That's awesome. And also multifamily, like just has so much competition from traditional private equity. And I feel like single family residential does not as much.
1: That's true. We are, uh, especially in these zip codes, we are competing against like Bob and Ann up the street. Not um some not our classmates from Morton, which is a significant advantage because Bob and Ann do not know how to price their home correctly. They do not know how to market their home correctly, and I can take their tenants. Um, it's a lot harder to do that to your point, in multifamily,
0: yep, <laughs> that's amazing. And I literally love the focus on family. I feel like so many people forget that, like in the hustle culture that we've built as a society, like always be working more, always be putting in more productivity. And then you realize like, for what, why are you working so hard? Mm-hmm. So love that mentality. Yeah. Um, what does a future versus classic capital look like? Like, let's say things are insanely successful for you. Are you taking time off and then just focusing on family or do you raise another fund? You continuously build it out. Like, what does the world look like if it's in its perfect state in five to 10 years?
1: yeah, you know, it's a really interesting setup because um, Scholastic is somewhat of a unique structure for a fund. Like a typical fund is like you raise all the money, everyone sends you the money, you have a year and a half to spend the money, and then ten years later, you sell everything and you're done. Scholastic is unique because one of the things we learned in buying our test homes is uh, our tenants, the families with kids, only move in between the school years, basically May through July, early August. So with that in mind, even if Elon Musk gave us a billion dollars, like, we can't spend a billion dollars in a year because we are, we only, we're only investing in a two to three year period. So we're basically like a rolling fund, not dissimilar from like an angel syndicate, where we're raising money every fall, winter, and then spending it in the summer, raising, spending, raising, spending, but it's all within the same vehicle. Um, so theoretically, like, we're, we're probably going to be doing that for a couple of years. And if we, if we have access to a good amount of capital, like, we can go out and buy more homes within the same vehicle in and of itself. Um, so that's a possibility. The other possibility that's actually really interesting is we we went into this talking with the big funds begin at the end in mind, like expecting to sell everything in, in 10 to 15 years. Um, we are technically what's called an evergreen fund though, where we could go forever. And we have had a significant percent of our existing investors and a lot of our new potential investors say something to the effect of, Hey, I think this thesis has more like 50 year durability than like a industrial building thesis. Um, if you want to keep this thing for 50 years and just send me a distribution check every month, like that would be awesome. In fact, like I'd prefer that. Or we even had one investor um, say that he would put capital in as long as he could block a sale. Cause he wanted to give his share of the fund to his kids. And this would be like his like leave money to the kids um, approach. Uh, And, like, that could be really interesting. So long way of answering your question of, like, what does the future look like? The future could look like uh, doing exactly like this. Nothing changes in, like, 20 years from now. We're still running Scholastic. We aren't buying anything. We're just, like, sending out distribution to each month.
0: That's the beauty of single-family residential. And, like, so much of that's ingrained in just, like, America's culture of, like, build my empire of properties, get that cash flow, continuously build it up. So not surprised at all that that's, you know, the take from some of your investors are just like, set it, forget it, get the passive income. Uh, no, that's awesome to hear. Um, so I guess like any key learnings that you'd like to share with people, like as you've been raising your fund, as you've been building this out, like any big mistakes you made that you're like, okay, if I was just starting off again, like raising our first fund for Celeste capital, like what would I not make again?
1: Yeah. Um, there's, there's two that come to mind. One is this isn't just a place where you need a partner. Um, it's, uh, there's, I think there's some worlds in the entrepreneurship space, so to speak, where you can get away with not having a partner. I think this is not one of them. You absolutely need to. I have a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic partner. Um, the other element to this is, um, the, the startup costs are not cheap or you could do it cheaply, but, uh, you shouldn't, um, you need basically need to go into this knowing like, Hey, this is your first time doing a fund, but you need a lot of vendors when you build a fund. Um, and that is not a place to go cheap because people, people are giving you their hard earned money. Like every, every, uh, sometimes someone sends send, signs on the dotted line, they're signing away like months of their work to send us that capital. Like they worked for months to make that money. Um, you need the absolute best attorney in the world for, for that scenario. You need the absolute best fund admin team. You need the absolute best investor portal. You need the absolute best tax preparation accounting firm because you need two different accounting firms. Um, so like all in, like you're talking about like well over 100, 150 grand worth of expense. Um, but it's, it would be almost foolish to not do that because you need to make sure everybody's money is taken care of with the best possible vendors on the
0: table. For sure. And I think taxes is a big piece of real estate. Like how are you doing mm-hmm. depreciation? What's yep. everyone's tax benefits with this? So that's key. Uh, how do you go about building that vendor network? Like any suggestions for people that launching their funds?
1: Um, it was a good question. We uh we started on the attorney side because the um the attorney piece is is basically like they need to be the first person you bring on the board. Um my partner is actually our attorney, which is great. Um but you, the attorney, if they're a good one, if they work for one of the very fancy big law firms that hires exclusively Ivy League law students and all of that, um, they will have a network of uh, who they work, who they I mean, basically work with everybody good on the accounting side of things, on the fund admin side of things. And then it's a function of talking with six of each, figuring out who you like best, who's the best fit for what you guys are doing, and then going forward from there. But a, a attorney is really the lunch pen.
0: It. How do you end up meeting your partner? seems like, like a perfect match to have an attorney on board?
1: <laughs> yeah oh it was um, uh, I got very very lucky. So the way the way that worked was um, we're all we're all on Twitter. We're actually been raising a lot of our capital from Twitter um, so we're um, we're on Twitter there's a very large Twitter account a couple hundred thousand followers um, a guy called strip mall guy He runs a fund a couple hundred million that buys strip malls strip mall guy tweeted about how his personal his funds attorney just joined twitter the guy graduated like number two at columbia law he works for one of the really fancy law firms like all he does is like fund um fund law um so I was like wow like great i'm starting a fund and be an attorney so i reached out to him and uh did the like sales call with him and there's a partner on the fund uh on the phone as well and at the end of the call he said something to the effect of like hey like I set these things up professionally. I did like 400 last year. Like this is the most interesting and best thought out thesis I've seen. Like if you do this, even not with me as your attorney, like tell me I'd like to invest. I was like, ah, it's your closing line. Like that's how you sell people at the end of the call. I like it. Like very, very smooth. Um, but we got off the call and then he emails me from his personal email. And he was like, actually like, I'm not, I wasn't kidding. Like, can we, can we talk personally? Um, and he was like, no, like, actually, this is great. Like, can I get more involved? Um, and then we spent a long, long, long time together. We flew back and forth to see each other and the whole nine yards. Um, fast forward like a year and we're, we're partners. Um, so now it's even more past that. And we're, uh, uh, well into the, the fundraising process together with him as a co-GP.
0: That's an amazing story. And the co-founder dating is real. Like, is about <laughs> like you're building a company with someone. Most companies last longer than marriages.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's like the type of commitment you're making when you're starting a business with someone. So I love that you put in a lot of time and effort before committing. Um, that makes so much sense. And you mentioned, like, just you've raised a lot of your money through Twitter. Mm-hmm. Like, how has that experience been for you? How has social media impacted that? I think a lot of people now are building their personal brands and trying to figure out how to do that. Like, how has that been for you? And how do you build that success?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, f- it's fascinating because um, Twitter is like the happy accident in my life that accelerated in my career like a decade. Um, I, I joined Twitter on a lark board um, and didn't think anything of it. I was uh, literally just posting random thoughts on my in my head and asking questions underneath tweets from other people that I thought were interesting and uh nothing kind of really happened for like 2 years and then there was a spike and it j- I went from like 2000 followers to like 30000 followers in like a 6 month period um and I kind of kept doing the same thing I was doing I was just like tweeting what I was thinking about that day what I was working on whatever and um so I was talking quite a bit about the real estate stuff and I started getting inbound messages from people like uh, this is before I even thought about getting a fund together. Um, people were like, Hey, like what you're doing is interesting. Like next time you buy a property, let me know. And I'd love to kick in or like, Hey, um, can you buy a property for me using your thesis? And like, I'll give you like 10% of whatever. If you, if you help me find a property. Um, and I was like, Oh, interesting. Like there's, there's something here. So uh, I, I honestly thought I was too young to be raising the fund. I thought you had to be in your like forties or fifties. Um, But I was getting inbound offers from capital for, for capital from Twitter. So I said, screw it. Like, let's, let's do it now, see what we can do. And it's, it's worked. And we've, we've raised, uh, I think it's safe to say millions of dollars at this point from individuals who have come across either me or my partner on Twitter talking about what we're doing. And then they asked to get on a phone call with us and they're like, Oh, you're a real person. And like, there's logic to this. And, um, it just kind of builds up from there. And then they, we end up uh, becoming, becoming um, partners from a LPGP perspective.
0: That's insane. Uh, (laughs) I've definitely heard a lot of people's Twitter stories. That's amazing. Um, And I feel like when you do find your niche in Twitter and like people really care about what you're saying, Mm -hmm. you do find a lot of success. And I think a big piece of that's just being genuine to who you are. Mm -hmm. And I think like that comes off in the type of content that you write. Any, like yeah of course any suggestions for someone who wants to build something like that like would you just say be genuine to a niche that you want to pick out or like do you have a schedule you can stick to
1: yeah the twitter piece is interesting i um so uh have gotten to meet some like very 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 large twitter accounts at this point um some have grown intentionally some have grown not so intentionally but the the kind of commonality as there's a metric that people look at, which is basically the ratio of the number of followers you have to the number of tweets that you have. Um, and the ratio of followers over tweets um, 2.0 is like outstanding. So if you want say 20,000 followers, that implies you need 10,000 tweets. So at the end of the day, like it's very much like a volume game. At, um, and it's just something where you need to get comfortable with the idea of sharing your thoughts, but also asking, like, I've learned so much from Twitter or um, somebody smart says something. I'm like, I, I need to know more, like, tell me more. And there's, there's accountants on there who specialize in like cost segregation for family offices. And they talk about how they, how their family offices does it. And it's like, wow, that's fascinating. You clearly put way more thought into it than we have, like, tell me more. Um, there's a gentleman I have met on Twitter relatively recently who Brilliant guy, and if he's if he's right, he's literally going to make our investors millions of dollars. Um, he works for a very large REIT on the multifamily REIT, and his full time job is figuring out how to lower the tax bill for their properties, so that then they can just drop more to the bottom line than the REITs so that gets it out. Um, I've gotten to know him via Twitter. Uh, I've told him more about some of our specific zip codes, what we're trying to do. And he literally came back with like, hey, here's no charge, no anything, just for fun. He put together like um, a, a detailed plan on how we could abate our property taxes down to zero, in his opinion, using one of these six different levers and like the preferred lever. And he found the right guy at the town council for us to be working with to do that. Like, if he's right, like our property taxes are our largest line item. Like, if he's right, he's literally going to make our investors millions of dollars. And it's just from Twitter because he's a world expert on this specific thing. And we got connected because of that.
0: That's actually insane. <laughs> wow. I I didn't ever use Twitter until a year and a half ago. Mm. And I promise you, like some of the connections I've made, like we're building on Solana as our blockchain. Like I okay. only met them because of Twitter. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy the doors that open you, if you're willing to put some of the time and effort in that specific channel just because people are so willing to take like cult DMs. And especially if you have like a history of writing things relevant to them in mm-hmm. their specific topic. So that's totally. awesome to hear, Sean, um, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, well, that's all the questions I have for you. Um, thanks so much for coming on to Groundbreakers and sharing your story. Um, I think any closing remarks you want to share, like if people want to learn more about Scholastic Capital or learn more about you, or maybe they want to invest, where should they go? <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm Sean. 15. I'm the 15th Irish Sean, apparently. Um, and if you, uh, so I'm, I'm pretty active there. Um, and, and quick on, uh, direct messages. Um, if anyone wants to talk scholastic, I'm Sean at scholastic.com ScholasticCapital.com. Um, we don't have scholastic. That's the book company. Um, and our website is also ScholasticCapital.com.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening to our third episode of groundbreakers. We drop episodes every Mm -hmm. Tuesday morning. We'll continue to have awesome guests like Sean sharing their story. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you.